Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the 3-0 show. We are part of the Athletic Baseball Show. We have a name. Yeah, we got a name. Derek Van Riper, Britt Giroli, Eno Saris. We have a name. I appreciate everybody who reached out and offered up some ideas. We had a few people who did that. We had some help internally. We kicked around, I'm going to guess, 50 names maybe between the three of us that we we kind of went through the no idea is a bad idea phase of brainstorming, which is a lot of fun. It's more fun at 2 a.m. after a few beers. We did this during normal business hours on Slack, miles and miles apart. But I think we landed on something good. I liked the name quite a bit. Yeah, then there was the phase where we had one we liked and no one else liked it. So. <laughs> yeah, right. Rejected names. Isn't it great when you can you can feel really good about something and you bring it to people who are important in your life and they just look at you like, no, absolutely not. Why would you call it that? Yeah. That's a horrible yes. idea. Guardrails. Guardrails are great. So we are excited to be here. On this episode, we are going to discuss the MLB Mega Draft. That was an exercise that occurred just over a week or so ago. The write-up went up last week, and we'll talk about what that is. And Britt was a part of it. Eno was a judge. Yes, a league in which we had a judge. Um, we'll explain how that relates to the problems that we see around baseball today. We have some news Pertaining to Trevor Bauer, we have mailbag questions to get to, looking at realignment and schedule changes. So a lot of stuff that does kind of correlate somewhat with the owners' meetings, which are in progress as we record this episode. But let's begin with the MLB Mega Draft. If you didn't read about it, if you didn't hear about it, didn't see anything about it yet, we had 30 staffers, Britt was among them, to participate in this process. And the exercise was to draft one of each of the following. A pitcher, a position player, an owner, which had to be one of the current 30 ownership groups or owners. A manager, who had to be a current manager. A GM, who could be literally anyone. There were some pretty interesting spins in there. Barack Obama. <laughs> yep. There was a city uh, in which your team would reside. And that would be like north side of Chicago, south side of Chicago. It had to be um, existing locations for MLB cities. So you couldn't draft Portland. You couldn't draft Charlotte. And you had to pick a ballpark, one of the current 30 MLB ballparks, which would go to that location. So you could take Coors Field and get it out of Colorado. Maybe Coors Field's not that bad if you take it away from altitude, for example. So you really have these interesting sorts of decisions to make. And I thought it was fascinating to look at the results because I would not have approached this the way that most of the people in the room did. Britt, you had to come up with a strategy for this. What was your process in determining a hierarchy for how important each of those seven categories were? Yeah, it was really hard, guys. Um, I know we talked about this before it even started, but I kind of felt like, okay, some of these don't really matter that much. Manager was probably not that important. 
Um, stadium, unless you got course Field, really didn't matter. But obviously ownership mattered. Market size mattered. Um, you wanted someone that was capable of running your team. And then, of course, you wanted players um, to kind of build your franchise around. So I kind of tried to go at it in that order. But the problem is when you're doing this with so many other people is I would say, okay, I'm going to commit. I'm going to get a top GM this round. And my time, my turn would come around. There really wouldn't be anybody left on the board. So then I would panic and kind of reverse course. That's kind of unfortunately how I got stuck with the Reds owner, with Bob Castellini as my owner, because I waited too long. And I think the first overall pick, Fabian, went to an owner, which was a smart move. Um, but again, it's so tough to say, would these guys spend money if they were in different circumstances or are they just not spending money? Because I think we all know teams are just absolutely flush with money. They could spend it no matter what market they're in. So it's almost like pick your poison with some of these owners. Yeah, I think that that was the most fascinating thing for me. I mean, uh, yeah, the idea of like how cores would play if you like physically put it somewhere else was also kind of interesting. Like, would cores even be that bad of a park if you put it at sea level? And if you did, it probably would be like a kind of almost extreme pitcher's park because it has this huge outfield. So uh that was kind of a, a mind-bending part of it but generally the the most interesting aspect to me was should you value market more or ownership more and uh, to me i think it's more i think market determines a lot of it because market determines not only your local tv deal which we know is a big deal but market also determines you know to peripherally things like you know, can I build a ton of condos around the ballpark and will anyone care if I do? You know, like, will they be worth any money if I do? Um, can I get really good local sponsorship deals or, you know, do I have to settle for sort of second and third tier sponsorship deals? And so I kind of think, and another thing that I, I liked about what you did is, you know, there were people that panicked and like Bob Nutting as an owner went like, like a full round ahead of you or something. And it was just like, like why <laughs> and i think that some people you know maybe people that don't do fantasy as much um will will enter will like face that moment you're talking about where you're like oh i can't get my gm that i wanted i had like a, a list of five gms and i wanted them and i i can't get them you know i think if you don't have much fan, uh, fantasy experience you'll be like oh god i'll just get the best gm that's left you know i'll panic and just do this i think you did a good job of being like well, okay, I'm not going to get one of the GMs I wanted, so I'll just do this other thing instead. And I think that's how you ended up with, like, Comerica Park instead of, you know, some of the other stuff. And I think, you know, what, in fantasy, once you decided to kind of punt, and in a 30-team league like this, you have to punt something because you're going to have to be bottom five in something. And I think your decision to be bottom five on manager was excellent. I mean... You know, we don't, only Marmol, we don't know if he's good or bad. And the average tenure of a manager is three years. So, you know, give him a year or two. If he's not good, get another guy. <laughs> you know, it's just not to be rude to managers. But, you know, I, I just didn't think that was a big deal. I think I would have picked my manager last as well. Yeah, the overall impact of a manager on the well-being of your franchise is less than every other factor that was in play here. And I think, you know, Marmol is just a simple internal upgrade for the Cardinals. We don't know his managerial tendencies, but the belief is that he's more analytically centered than Mike Schilt. So he should be decent 
or will do what the front office says more than Mike Schultz. <laughs> well, yeah, and maybe that's part of the exercise, too, is you want a manager that is in lockstep with your front office, regardless of who you have running your front office. Britt got David Stearns with the 45th pick. I thought the room did have it wrong because of the ownership thing, because I, I firmly believe that the owners are there to make money and nothing else. And spending does, I think, trickle all the way back to the TV contracts. The Dodgers, at the time that Craig Edwards over at Fangraphs uh, last like took a deep dive into this, the Dodgers make more money on their local TV deal than anyone by a huge margin. Like a $100 million gap between the Dodgers and the Angels, who were in second at the time. So if you say, why do the Dodgers spend so much? To me, it's that they have that coming in guaranteed right there. It's a big market team that has that TV deal. It's not necessarily because their ownership group just out of the kindness of their hearts wants to spend more money than the other owners. I don't think it works like that. So I would have I would drafted a market before I would have drafted an owner. And yes, maybe there are some absolute terrible owners. Maybe having Dick Monfort as your owner is just bad regardless of where you are. I can level with that. So you don't want to necessarily end up with him, but you don't necessarily have to prioritize you know, getting the learners who own the Nationals because, well, they won a World Series and they they spend money on free agents. I think that that line of thinking to me is just a little bit misguided. I thought the interesting decisions here were the GMs and and being able to go outside the box left some really creative latitude. But one of the things that I was panning our friend Nando Defino for was he drafted Artie Moreno in the first round, twenty first overall. I told him not to do it beforehand because he suggested this on a podcast. Like, I'm going to draft Artie Moreno. I said, that's a bad idea. Don't do draft that. Draft Anaheim way later instead. <laughs> what? Goes ahead and does anyway, but he gets Billy Bean in the second round. And I, I said, okay, well, if you'd taken Billy Bean in the first round, nobody would have laughed at you because Billy Bean has worked in the constraints as a GM uh, of having a bad owner who doesn't like to spend money, uh, a bad stadium. Uh, and he's he's had a lot of success. So you can very reasonably say that Billy Bean is flexible as someone that is in that GM position. He can kind of make it work regardless, give him more resources, good things might happen. Uh, but there were some bananas decisions. Bill Belichick, like Daniel Barbarisi went Bill Belichick in the fifth round. And I, I do think the GM That's is, my editor, is, baby. He's fun. It's a fun pick. <laughs> it's a crazy idea. But if you could pick anyone in baseball. there's a hockey GM in there. There's some names I was like. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Rutherford, I think, was in there. But if you could have anyone in baseball, I think there are still a lot of people that haven't had that opportunity to be a GM that deserve it, that would do a great job, as opposed to bringing someone in from a completely different sport. And again, I realize this is part of this is an exercise just in, in fun and in creativity and what would happen if you did this. But I think the GMs were undervalued. Picked, I think Scott Harris. That was an interesting pick because Scott Harris, uh, you know, mm-hmm. is a is under Farhan Zaidi and was under Theo Epstein, and has been a part of some really winning franchises. And you know, you could kind of dream on him a little bit. And at least he knows baseball. <laughs> if you can draft anyone as a GM. Is unless you get someone who's proven that you really like, I think you can just wait until the very end for that and then make a smart hire of someone that deserves the opportunity. So I think that was one way to play it that I thought more people you know, could have taken advantage of that loophole. I liked Brits because the you know David Stern uh, um, with uh, with the Houston market, uh, mm-hmm. Comerica Park. I mean, as everything's lining up, it's it's fine. It, it almost doesn't matter who the players are, but you got Vladito too. I mean, it's kind of a 
thought it was a really fun one. Um, and the other thing that I was thinking about too is on the stadium front. I I tend to think the stadiums don't matter, and I like the Comerica pick because it's a nice stadium. But think about the top probably three or four stadiums in baseball. They fill themselves, and it doesn't matter if they're winning or not. Correct. So there are some stadiums like San Francisco, uh, you know, Wrigley, Fenway, that kind of fill themselves. So. Uh, that was a little tempting, but would would Fenway in Arizona work? Would it really be the same? <laughs> no, no, because you, your market's still Arizona, and you have all these people that are are transplants who've moved there from other places who are not fans of your local team, and the charm of your ballpark only goes so and far. And you don't have like, the tourism of, reason... of like people coming to Boston and then getting a game at Fenway. Like people wouldn't like. There's not as many people who like go to Phoenix. No, I mean, if you put Fenway, if you didn't put a roof on top of Fenway in Arizona, people would just roast there. So you'd you'd cook your fans. No one would go. So you'd ruin a great ballpark by putting it there. Fenway's not a great ballpark by itself. It's the Boston (laughs) mystique and the Red Sox in the history. Fenway, honestly, is falling apart. I've seen rats the size of small children there. Um, They can't build an They can't build another level because the rats have eaten out a lot of the infrastructure, I heard. I don't know if that's true, but it wouldn't surprise me. Hungry rats. Awful. My my husband's been to about a dozen stadiums, and he always talks about how small and uncomfortable the seats were at Fenway Park Mm. because they're so old. So, again, I think you can't move Fenway Park and try to, like, capitalize on the fact that it's going to be packed. That's a Boston thing. It's not a, ooh, this Fenway Park is so great thing. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so separating the park from the city was huge, but I think the cities were pretty important. The GMs, if you didn't get someone you really liked early, I think you could have waited and been creative with the hires there. Uh, Star power, I thought, was going to carry more weight than it did because if if part of the exercise is to win games and sell tickets and grow your fan base, having players that do that is really important. But uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll put a link to the, the results and here. People can dig into this on their own. I think the most fascinating thing about all this is it, it does sort of link into the, the MLB owners meetings that are happening right now. We're obviously in a situation where the owners have locked out the players. What do we want from owners? What do we expect them to be in this era? Because the the league is hyper profitable. You know, you were digging into franchise values today compared to what these owners and groups have paid. And the further back in time you go, of course, the the more massive the the profit is, right? But but even more recently, I mean, the Royals sold for a billion dollars just a couple of years ago. And that's a smaller market team with an older ballpark with a small TV deal. I didn't understand how that franchise could be that valuable. But if the Royals are worth a billion dollars... Just look at the scope of the money that's in the game right now. It, it, it's pretty staggering, and it leads to all sorts of different questions just about what we really think the role of owners needs to be in sport right now. Yeah, I've had some pushback in my discussions that you know owners are risk takers. They put all this money on the line. I think it's, uh, first of all, I think that's a little bit of an antiquated notion that like one person has put all the money on the line. Yes, like Steve Cohen largely uh, you know, put that money together. But there are a lot of ownership groups that are just groups of investors where there's a principal owner that owns a little bit more than everybody else. It's not kind of the old Steinbrenner days where most teams are owned by one dude who's out there, you know, you know, putting it all on the line, you know. Um, and, and it's not a nascent league anymore where it's like, well, will MLB be around? Like, will these teams be worth any money? 
uh, it's kind of like, yes, I think it's probably maybe the safest investment that you can make in America today is to buy uh, one of the the major franchises from by any franchise from one of the major sports. So just to, to kind of put a point on that, uh, the average team today is worth one point five billion dollars more than when it was purchased. Uh, the average team today is worth one point nine billion uh, and was purchased for around five hundred million. So, uh, so that is uh, an immense amount of wealth. Now, people are right, I think, when they kind of uh, point out to us to say, "Well, that is um, that's like buying a house, and maybe you're cash poor, right? Like you're you 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 bought a house, you're leveraged up to the hilt, and you don't actually make a bunch of money, but your house is worth a lot of money." And someone's saying. Why don't you pay your own, your, 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 the people that work for you more or whatever? And you're saying, well, you know, I own this thing. It's worth a lot of money, but I don't have a lot of money. I don't, I think that, uh, that argument fails on a couple fronts. One is, um, there is no team in baseball that is leveraged the same way that we have, that our houses are leveraged, for instance. You know, like when we buy a house, sometimes we put 10% down. That means we were leveraged 90, 90% of it is debt, right? Uh, the highest percentage of baseball is 40%, uh, and there is no other team above 30%, and the average is around 10%. So, and, and actually lower than that, it's like 7 to 8%. So, teams largely own themselves, and they don't have a ton of debt against it. That's at least according to the Forbes evaluations. And the last thing I wanted to point out is, if you're talking about risk, uh, 2020 is probably about the worst thing that could have happened. You know, like the worst year for most of us for all of us like we'd love to like just wipe 2020 off the map for the most part and it's the worst thing that could have happened to baseball and teams on average lost 56 60 million dollars right that's the worst thing that could have happened according to my numbers if you just look at the most recent Forbes evaluations and these were done in in 2021 teams could have 25 straight 2020s 25 straight of the worst year ever they could that could happen 25 years in a row and the average team would still sell for a hundred million dollar (laughs) profit i don't want to play that simulation that's great that's like the worst the worst thing that could have happened it could happen 25 times in a row (laughs) and they would still make money off of their investment you know, I feel like you should just put all that into an article. Those are terrific stats. I also think... It's not a risk. <laughs> no, I also think from a more subjective point of view that most owners don't just own teams. This is yeah. their side job. So again, when you talk about, oh, I leveraged my house, I'm cash poor. Most of us have one job, like one primary job, right? That makes mm-hmm. the bulk of our income. We don't just on the side own a team. These guys are like the learners, for example. Really, They own half of downtown DC. They're real estate um developers that's what they do for a living the angelos family in baltimore uh they own a law firm so the the team isn't just their it's just a fun side hobby in a way to kind of shield them from a lot of tax laws it's not necessarily their it's not almost never their only source of income yeah yeah and and so and and often there's like you know these sort of cascading benefits you talk about the learners being you know right way into uh, uh real estate well guess what happened when they built that ballpark where they did boom you've seen the cranes you know the cranes have been there for for like five years they're they're just building and building and building and i'm sure 
I'm sure the learners are building most of that stuff out there. Uh, and so it immediately raised the value of, of other other ventures that they have. So and then, you know, the tax benefit is there, too, which is that they can if there is a yearly loss, uh, they can then write off their other, you know, things, the other money they're making on other ventures and say, oh, this is convenient. Uh, you know, the, the Orioles lost $10 million this year. That's actually that's actually kind of good for us because we made, you know, $50 million over here and we can write down uh, 10 and pay less taxes. So um, that's, you know, it's all sort of part of a, a kit and caboodle there. Whereas uh, baseball players uh, on the on the player side, they're more like us in terms of like they got one job. You know, some of them have some some sponsorship deals, uh, but not, I would say, 90 percent of them. 95% even that don't make significant money. I mean, you're talking about like the Harpers of the world. You're in the really upper echelon of guys who make significant money on, on the side. Yeah, there's like, there's guys who get free shoes. Yeah. I mean, that stuff happens. Yeah. But, and, and they'll call it a sponsorship deal, but it's not like, well, it's not like really extra money. Yes. Hey, we uh, are going to give you some bats and gloves. Right. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. This always leads to just this sort of cynical place where, it's easy to get very frustrated about the state of things and ownership and the power of ownership and the wealth created by it. But what should our expectations collectively as people who cover the game, as fans of the game, like I just, just kind of asking for more of just like the broader public perspective, what should we expect from owners at this point? What are their obligations to the rest of us? I mean, on paper, they have none. So it's really more of just a, well, can they at least be good stewards of the game? Can they at least try and keep this thing that we enjoy try. enjoyable? Like, try. Just, no. Can they make that effort for us? Try is that asking is the too much? Word. They need to they try. Yeah, there's no financial incentive for them to do so. Right. This is why... TV deals are locked in. Yes, this is why players are so upset about the tanking and stuff is because if you are running a profitable business, which is how owners see these teams, it's a very profitable business, um, and you could spend another hundred million dollars on payroll but you don't know if that's going to pan off if your team's going to win the world series if you're going to recoup that money why would you right so they don't really owe us anything and this is why uh the owners meetings are going on right now in orlando and the players association just met in arizona garrett cole tweeted they had more than 100 players um and he said that they were all united they're all going to stand up for the integrity of the game so this is why i think this is going to take a while and Rob Manfred is going to speak tomorrow, and I don't think um, there's going to be good news. I think he's likely going to announce some kind of inevitable delay of spring training. But this is why the two sides are at the kind of the impasse, right? Because the owners don't have to make any changes, and the players want changes. Um, and I do think we haven't talked about this a lot, but the owners also want some changes. They they don't just want the status quo. Uh, they want to implement some differences. Uh, they want to pay less on the pension. Correct. They and they want the international draft, right? Isn't that a big thing that they're pushing for? But there's so there's just not really any reason for them to come down off of a lot of the things that they uh, want because they have so much more money than the average player that they can and will sit it out and twenty five really straight wait. years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's depressing. You know, we could be in a very long lockout because but, they're just you know not going to have to worry about money. Yeah, the, the, I think one thing that was uh, depressing was that instead of uh, making a counter proposal, so the, the most recent proposal has come from the player side, instead of making a counter proposal, the ownership uh, group asked for uh, mediation. 
With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. But there's a there's an interesting thing uh, that is unique to baseball in terms of how the, the players' union uh, ratifies a deal. Uh, most unions, once you have a tentative deal in place with ownership, there's a full vote uh, across the entire union. Uh, but in baseball, once there's a tentative agreement, it will be uh, voted on only by the executive subgroup and the player reps. So that's 30 players plus the uh, however many are in the executive subgroup. That's a little bit different. And so that what you're talking about, that, that players um, you know, meeting that they had is actually super important because it, you have to kind of take the temperature of the larger group and you have to do it in ways where you can kind of take some feedback and then go back to leadership and get a group, get a thing that the deal that they'll be happy with. Um, And so it's a delicate dance uh, for baseball's player union more than a lot of other unions, because uh, you want to have their, their their, uh, input, but you can't um, have all of them at the table. They'd all, everybody would have different ideas and it would take for, you know what I mean? Like there has to be some sort of subgroup that, that uh, negotiates with ownership. So um you know, those, those types of meetings are, are super important to kind of keep everyone rallied, uh, get some feedback, you know, find out what the most important, uh, you know, things are that they need to win in their negotiations um, and, and to rally the troops, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I can't tell. I mean, you know, it, I, do, I do think that they're still they're talking about the, the same issues and there seem to be sort of three core issues as is the CBT, the minimum salary um and uh some sort of early arbitration stuff they're talking about the same issues and those three issues seem like to me like they could be figured out but if there is no willingness to negotiate that's another story and if you know if the players union says we've already moved off of our positions and you haven't done anything um i i I it's hard for me to say that they're wrong about that uh that characterization unrelated to this uh i was out for a drive yesterday and I threw on MLB network radio in the car for a few minutes. I'm like, what are they doing to fill time? That is live on air. Those are three hour blocks, uh, talking to a lot of old players, replaying interviews, you know, doing all sorts of things like just, just trying to get by. I feel for hosts that are live on air for hours at a time right now, because that is a, a miserable place to be. But they had a caller while I was listening that was suggesting that maybe the players would be willing to give up, uh, guaranteed contracts, which is never going to happen. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because the caller brought up, I think, the Chris Davis contract in Baltimore and said, these teams get stuck with these players who are underperforming their deals. And I, I'm listening to this and I'm saying, why do we not 
frame these things and say, that's like a handful of bad contracts. But we have several players on every team. If you looked at what they're paid and what they're worth based on war and simple metrics that will explain how you convert you know, production into dollars, they're underpaid. Half of every roster is at least 60% underpaid. 60% is on, the, the, on pre-arbitration salaries, which is basically the minimum, sort of 500, 600,000 a year. Why do people like to cling to the Eric Hosmers and the Chris Davises? Because and, their and salary is the, published. Their salary is just out of this world for most of us to comprehend, just, 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 a, just a, such a large number. And it doesn't seem right. And then people, I think, also uh, erroneously tie player salaries to how much they pay to get into a game. And, you know, I even had this conversation with my dad. Uh, I said, he, my dad said, you know, that's why it costs so much to go to this game. And I was like, no, 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 dad, the reason it costs so much about this game is you, not the player. It's not the player's salary. It's you. What they've done is modeled you. They figured out everything about you and what you're willing to pay. That's that's what's happening on on the player on the side. That's why we have variable pricing for tickets, right? That's mm-hmm. why you know when the Yankees come to town, the tickets are twice as much as when the D-backs come to town or whatever. So um, you know they've just modeled people that go to the parks to get the most money out of them, and that's a separate discussion of what they're they're willing to play players. Um, because, and this is what Britt was alluding to earlier, so much is locked in. You have $60 million locked in from the national TV deals. Uh, you have X million dollars locked in from, uh, those, those, those national sponsorship deals like, 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 uh, like, um, what are the different sponsorship deals? I know their sponsor, one of their big sponsors is, uh, Anheuser-Busch. For example, it's all Dusan, the during now. the playoffs, do in, in the crypto <laughs> exchange, you know, so right. FTX, FTX. Yeah. So, you know, all that money, I don't know what it is, uh, plus the 60 million, plus your local deal, which is uh, on average about 50 million. So I would say teams are bringing in 120 million. Um, and then, you know, I was told, uh, you know, from a team source that they thought that, you know, a front office would cost a front office in a minor league system would cost about $20 million. So teams could spend $100 million on payroll, every single team. So I know people listening to this podcast are like, oh, my God, this is so boring. When's baseball going to return? Uh, the answer is none of us know. Mm-hmm. And as we said, the MLB owners are this week. Uh, the meetings are this week. But they're not meeting with the PA who's out in Arizona. So basically what you're looking at is maybe the end of this week, the two sides talk again. I think that's unlikely. I think it's probably going to be next week. Uh, and now, right now we're pushing up against like an early March start time, right? Because now we're getting into mid-February. I think you still need two weeks for players to sign and to physically get to these camps. Um, so certainly, like I said, Rob Manfred is expected to announce that they're going to delay spring training. Um, now March one isn't terrible. They can still start the season on time, but now I think you got to keep an eye on the clock because if we get into March uh, and there's still no agreement, then I think the regular season is going to be in jeopardy. Yeah, the yeah the regular season starts to be in jeopardy in like uh, two weeks or a week and a half. I mean, like mm-hmm. you know, it gets really close. I think the the least amount of time you could have for spring training is like what three weeks? Three weeks. That's what they did in the twenty twenty season. So I think once you get, I think like you're right. End of February gets a little dicey. I think once you get to March one, if you don't have a deal, like season's being delayed. Probably. Um, and I think both sides are prepared for that. Our fans are we not really, uh, but I think both sides are kind of digging their heels in and I don't see kind of a, a, a deal being reached quickly. Um, you know, I know you were very optimistic. I'm wondering how you feel 
now as we sit here versus like a couple weeks ago when we talked. I mean, them, them pulling them, them not even offering a counter offer is not great. The, the whole mediation they're doing, they seem to be doing more PR work than actual negotiating work. Correct. It was interesting to see all the players kind of uh, hashtag at the table was the hashtag I think was saying yeah. like there was a kind of a united message on Twitter. It is also interesting to to note that like, yeah, Twitter was around in 2015, but like this you know, now players, I think, are more on top of their personal brands and their personal social media accounts more than they were in 2015. And you're starting to see some PR being done by the players themselves um, in the social media space. And so you saw a lot of tweets about, hey, you know, why do we need a mediator? We're at the table. You're not, you know, and uh uh, to see that uh, was uh, interesting. I, I I don't actually think that the players uh, that the owners are are winning the PR battle, which I think they normally do. Um, I think play, you know, I think that like I said about fans, like and knowing the the salaries of players, I think there's uh, often a lot of uh, you know, well, you know, I don't care about the plight of the player. You know, he makes he makes too much money. I don't, you know, blah blah blah. But the average player, you know, these days uh, is out of baseball in about two and a half years. So that means they and I know this is still a big number. You know, they, they make, you know, maybe a million, a million, one point two million. But once you take taxes out, that's less than a million. And then once you think about the minor league time that they spent, um, you're talking about making something like nine hundred thousand for nine, ten years of your life. And then you're out of baseball and your earnings potential goes through the floor. I mean, you don't really have much going on for you if you're that sort of average player that had a couple years in the big leagues uh, and you're out and you're 30 years old and what are you trained to do other than play baseball? You basically start where a lot of people start when they're 18. If you didn't go to college or you didn't go somewhere to, to get some kind of degree, you go do that and start from there maybe, but then you're kind of in a bucket with everybody else and older than everybody else. So mm-hmm. yeah, definitely it's something that doesn't get talked about uh, as much uh, as it probably should be. Some more news uh, that came out. Britt, you uh, put this out on Twitter on Tuesday. Los Angeles County will not file charges against Trevor Bauer, which just leads us to uh, the usual feeling of frustration and disappointment, but also the the what's next question. Now it's pretty much in Major League Baseball's hands to decide how it's going to complete its investigation and how they want to proceed with disciplinary action because paid administrative leave started back in July for Bauer, presumably after the lockout, we're going to get some kind of resolution in this matter, but what's next? Like what's going to actually happen here? MLB is going to try to reach out to Bauer and complete their investigation. Now it's a lockout, so he doesn't have to talk to them. I would think though, that he may just want to get this part over with and kind of move the investigation along quickly now, it's worth noting, and we were talking off air, that the CBA that uh, we're talking about here, where Rob Manfred could unilaterally punish Bauer independent of the court system, um, which is the joint domestic violence and um, sexual abuse policy, is technically not on the table right now because it is part of the old CBA. I did talk to a player uh, that is part of the subcommittee this morning, and he said that that's one of the few things they agree on. It's going to be in the next CBA in some form or fashion, maybe some small tweaks, maybe strengthened a little bit, but it's not going to go away. It's not going to impact Rob Manfred's ability to punish Trevor Bauer if he chooses to do so. Um, And I got a lot of questions yesterday, and I think 
what people don't understand is it was kind of an expected outcome um, with the criminal cases um, against Bauer. This took five months um, out in LA County. And I did get a copy of the declination against uh, Bauer. And basically it just said that, you know, after a thorough review of the available evidence, including the civil restraining order, the witness statements and the evidence, the people are unable to provide the relevant charges, unable to prove the relevant charges beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's what they were looking for here in determining whether to charge him. Could they prove it beyond a reasonable doubt or not? And if the answer was no, and it was always going to be tough to do, then they were simply not going to take on this high profile of a case. Yeah, more about winning from a legal perspective than anything else, unfortunately. So that's where things stand right now. We'll see what the next few weeks or months bring. We have not heard the last of this story and, and great work by you and Katie Strang from the beginning as you continue to cover these allegations against Bauer. I don't think that we'll see a resolution right away. I, I doubt we'd see it before there was a CBA, even though if he could do something, because just in terms of priorities, I mean, Manfred's got to be all about. I, I mean, there's a there's a crazy case going on. and The, the Tyler Skaggs case is, is going on in, in Anaheim right now. Um, and there was news yesterday that uh, the defense is going to argue that uh, Tyler Skaggs uh, got the drugs that fateful night that he died from Matt Harvey um, and uh, and not from the, the 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 clubhouse attendant who's who's at the who's defending himself in this case. So, you know, there are a lot of irons in the fire for Manford right now, but I would I'd still have to think that you know, his number one priority is, you know, getting this deal done with the players. Does seem logical. And yeah, the this Tyler Skagg story, it's another story that seems to get worse and worse as more details are, are brought to light as that case uh, now is finally underway. Let's get to some mailbag questions. It's not all bad. We had a question come in uh, pertaining to realignment and schedule changes. Apparently, it's a popular topic in Orioles Twitter. This question came in from Ryan, um, condensing this down just a bit. He writes, Orioles fans really believe that if you switch them and say the Royals, the Orioles would have won 70 plus games last year. The AL East is always one of, if not the hardest division in baseball. The Yankees and Red Sox are rarely bad. And if they are for a year, they immediately flex their financial muscle and compete the following year. Tampa Bay has the best development program in baseball and never bottoms out. So when Toronto is good as they are now, how the heck is a fifth team supposed to compete? Which I think is a fair question. I mean, it, it's it kind of comes back to some of the tanking stuff that we were getting at earlier. And if you if you keep the divisions as they are, this doesn't change for the foreseeable future. Like the two things that will not change are the Yankees and Red Sox. Maybe the Rays, after enough brain drain, finally get to a point where they can't do what they're doing as well as they're doing it. And maybe after the Jays' current young core, four or five years from now gets a little older and gets expensive, maybe they won't be the team they are right now. So maybe then the window starts to open up for a team like the Orioles. But the question that Ryan threw at us was, could this be fixed by realignment or at least changing the schedule so division games aren't weighted so much? So I'm curious, Britt, do you think there's an appetite for one or both of those changes as a related maneuver to maybe help fix some of the tanking issues in the game? So... Former Orioles manager, current Mets manager, Buck Showalter, used to always say that if he had it his way, he would just make two leagues, AL, NL, split them, have them play each other uh, a certain amount of times. He had it all done up, and it was pretty much like a 
balanced or as close to a balanced schedule as you're going to get. Um, so do I think that would help the Orioles? Certainly. Um, I think watching that team last year, someone thinking that they were going to win 70 games seems a bit of a reach. And again, the Orioles ran away with the AL East 2014. They made the playoffs in 12. They made the playoffs in 16. They, they are fully capable of doing that. This is the way the front office has chosen to tear it down, to not spend any money, and fingers crossed it works. Um, but they're always going to have a smaller margin for error. You know, I think you can look to the NL West and say, boy, it's not fair for them either. Look, the Giants are good. Look, the Dodgers are good. Like, you know what I mean? I, look, the Padres, like, I, I I get it, except, like, that's the current situation that they're in. Um, I would be in favor of kind of splitting the league's AL-NL and, and seeing a little bit more um, of a balanced schedule. Except all those Yankee Red Sox games are a ton of money for the league. All of those division rival games are a ton of money. Um, the big division rival games, you know, the the Padres Dodgers games, a lot of excitement, a lot of people in the stands this year. I don't see the league wanting to give that up. I think that's a big factor here. Uh, and again, the Orioles can compete. Again, he mentioned the Rays, like they just don't have that excuse. Sorry, we're not as smart as the Rays. You know, like you have to <laughs> figure it out. That's the division you're in. Yeah, I think those are all good points. There is a tension there, I think, because when you go to expanded playoffs, you know, and you maybe add the NLDH, you're going to start to have, you know, kind of homogeneity across the league. And uh, we're going to have more interleague play, and you could actually have a, a more balanced schedule. And it might be sort of required by this kind of homogeneity. Uh, that you create when everyone has the DH and, you know, there are just the top 10 teams, period, make it. And, and it almost doesn't matter much, as much about the division you're in. So I think that's on one side. And the, on the other side is, yeah, the money they can make off of Yankees Red Sox. So they're not going to not going to give that up. But uh, do they make as much money off of Yankees Baltimore? Like maybe maybe there's a couple more, you know, series of, you know, Baltimore playing the Braves or something, you know, that, that take take that over. If, if, if it's all just seen kind of more as one league and 14 teams make the playoffs, you know, that's kind of like I, I have a hard time sometimes looking at, uh, you know, the NFL or the NBA and remembering which one is in each conference at this point, you know, because it's like they're all just – a bunch of teams, you know, oh yeah, they're in the NFC, you know, it's like kind of not something, but in the, in the, in baseball, I still have that. I know in the American league teams very easily. I don't know. That's just because I know more about baseball, but I think that baseball is headed towards where the NBA and the NFL are a little bit more. I just wonder if we can go back to maybe two divisions per league, just to open things up a little bit more that way. I I think the point about the rivalry games is huge. Like that's part of why they won't completely flatten out the schedule. We're never going to have a schedule where each team plays an even number of games home and away against every other team. It's not going to happen. That's the most fair way to build a schedule. That's not the way to build a schedule to make the most money. Therefore we get something more like what we have. Travel matters too. You know, you don't want, you would like to rather cut down travel if you can. Sure. And I, I think one thing that, I thought was somewhat useful in the 2020 season was having the regional pods where it was the AL and NL East teams playing each other and the AL and NL Central teams and the AL and NL West teams. I, I liked that. I think getting a little more balanced that way would actually be good. But then you could still preserve your close rivalries. And I think some of those interleague rivalries that have developed over the last 20, geez, we're 25 years into interleague play now. Are we getting old? Is that what's happening? Yeah. Well, wow. interleague play <laughs> is another moneymaker that like, 
really isn't fair that they should get rid of, but they're not going to because everyone wants to go to the, you know, Mets Yankees games and the Cubs White Sox. And, you know, so that's also not going away. Yeah. And then you just get it really imbalanced where like you're like, wait, you get to play them and we have to play these guys. Yeah. Well, there's a handful of those interleague rivalries that are, are two big market teams that wouldn't see each other otherwise, where I'm sure it's great. And then there's the the leftovers, the other teams that get to have those those fake rivalries where you're just like, oh, it's going to be Rockies Rangers. There's not really that much bad blood between <laughs> Dallas and Denver. Not really a, a big rivalry there. And, and you can sort of develop one over time, but it's not the same as yeah the crosstown rivalries that we were able to see in the regular season once they decided to make that part of the schedule a while back. So. I don't know. I think if you get expanded playoffs, maybe you get some kind of tweak to the alignment, but the schedule is probably going to look a lot like it does right now, unfortunately. Uh, thanks a lot for that email, Ryan. Some important questions about the baseball. This one came in from Barry. Barry just wants to know, does anyone have a definitive idea or answer on what ball is being used for the 2022 season? This seems maybe a little more like Eno's beat, I guess. So I'll, I'll start it with Eno. Have you seen or heard anything that leads you to believe that we will have a more consistent baseball in 2022? Yeah, I mean, the backstory is that Meredith Wills um, and Bradford Davis uh, had a great expose in Business Insider about, or I don't know, maybe it's Sports Insider, whatever, it's, it's under the umbrella about how last year they used uh, two different balls and one was was the one they were supposed to use the more deadened ball and the other was a ball from 2020 uh, that they had left over and if you believe baseball and this is where you know I think people can be smart people and 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 think different things um I think I find baseball's explanation plausible you know i'm not and and you know i'm a guy if you listen to our podcast if you listen to rates and barrels you know that i'm not like you know in rob manford's pocket but you know yeah they said we ran out of balls because of covid they had to reduce the amount it's the ball is hand stitched and so they ran out of uh they had to actually shut down and 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 have fewer people into the uh, you know, making the balls, you know, in the in in Costa Rica and in in Mexico. So therefore, they didn't have enough balls, and so they had to use some old twenty twenty balls. Uh, it's, it seems like a plausible explanation. So if you believe that plausible explanation, if you think that is a plausible explanation, then then you would say that next year, this season, we will have the more deadened ball, because that would be the one we were supposed to use last year, and that they should have enough inventory at this point. Right. So any any massive inconsistencies in the ball this year would then create further scrutiny, deservedly so. Because well, th that, And that is actually part of, I think, that was what's misunderstood is that the ball-to-ball -ball variation is higher than the year-to-year -year variation because it's made by humans. Mm -hmm. And so no matter what, you know, they can do their best to have, like, say, this these specs. Uh, the In any given year, the, the, the difference from ball-to-ball -ball is going to be higher than the difference from year to year. And that's, that's I believe that is a truth. And that's something that people have measured. Correct. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I think as much as it seems like, oh, the league is conspiring, it's a pretty well-known fact that COVID caused a lot of manufacturing shortages. And so I think this is a plausible thing. I think it's something that's going to be scrutinized this season. And um, 
you know, if there are more issues, then Eno, our resident baseball expert, is going to be all over it. But I don't. It's my least favorite beat. Uh, I don't. <laughs> the ball. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> there are worse beats, though, as we know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'll switch with you, Eno. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> For all the money in the world, never. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I just couldn't. Oh, oh God. Uh, yeah, I, I would I would expect that um, homers would be down a little bit. Uh, that, But not a ton. Um I mean, I don't think we would go to like pre twenty fifteen uh, when when we saw a kind of explosion in homers. Had one more question related to the ball or how the ball is treated, and that, of course, is the use of humidors. This question came in from a frequent emailer OJ. I like the uh, salutation. Howdy, pickleballers! <laughs> Britt, do you play pickleball too? Um, I do. Not wait, not frequently. Um, but I have. It's fun. I enjoy it. But I don't live out in California where you can kind of play year-round outside, you know? It's true, yeah. The, the indoor thing kind of – I've had to do that before. It's fine. It's still fun. It just adds the, the cost element that the outdoor game doesn't have. But a question that was uh, avoided by me when I nuked the inbox, which was a brilliant move. I highly suggest everyone delete all their emails right now just from a <laughs> mental health standpoint. It's incredibly empowering. Do we know what impact all the new humidors have had either positively when removing moisture or negatively when adding it? Because there are believed to be nine parks using humidors right now. Uh, I'll kick this one to you first as well, Eno, just because it is a, a another ball-related sort of question. What have we seen so far from the increased use of humidors? Yeah, the, the, the largest effect we've seen is Colorado and Arizona, where it took two very dry situations that were very hitter friendly and made them a little bit closer to normal, a little bit. In fact, Arizona, I think is a neutral park now, uh, given that the humidor is, is basically adding moisture, uh, to those balls. There are places where it removes, uh, moisture from the ball, probably, uh, in Texas and in Dallas, it's removing moisture in Miami. It's removing moisture. Basically it's part of a trend of, uh, again, that word homogeneity where, most of the parks have tried to be neutral. They've moved their fences in. The, you know, the Baltimore park changes. Uh, just generally, teams are trying to have a neutral park out there because they don't want a hitter or a pitcher to say, no, I won't play there because it's, you know, too hitter or pitcher friendly. And, um, and so I do think that the effect in places like St. Louis and Toronto, where it is, and Houston, is probably not that large. Uh, but it is interesting to see the Astros on there because uh, they're, you know, a team that has that that really kind of runs the numbers on everything, and mm-hmm. you know they just wanted to have a predictable ball, hopefully not one that they're manipulating. Some in the humidor, some not. No, just kidding. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That was just a joke. <laughs> you had to go I have there. No reporting. I'm not. I've been to be clear. That was just a joke. Uh, that uh, that they wanted to have a, a neutral ball. I don't think it, it matters as much to the non-Houston, non-Arizona spots. It's just uh, on the margins, just trying to make everything predictable. And I think one of the other questions that was in this email was just that, you know, when the Rockies brought in the humidor, people were obsessed with it. They were the first team to utilize one, but it's such an extreme environment that it seemed so necessary. It was more of a, a curiosity of how much can this possibly help? Uh, I think you're right. I mean, Britt, is there anything about 
the use of humidors that is is truly different than what the Orioles just did moving in fences at Camden Yards. What teams seem to do every offseason with very little attention. Uh, the Angels moved fences in a few years ago. The Giants have moved fences. Line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like that yeah. that doesn't seem to be that much of an outrage. I, I, that's to me, that's where this goes. Is that your reaction as well? Yeah, I think what you're seeing is these really brilliant front offices running numbers and saying, "Hey, here's an efficient way to build a slightly better team, or to make it a little easier to build a better team." Uh, that's what's happening. That's what you're seeing now with all these tiny tweaks, right? Teams are just trying to get like a one percentage better. Right? They're fighting for everyone knows what everyone's doing. They're fighting for those little tiny percentages. That's what made Farhan Zaidi so good was he was so excellent at the waiver claims, right? These guys weren't superstars they were claiming, but they were getting 1% better. And that's what you're seeing throughout the game with these Ivy League front offices is how do we win on the margins? And that that to me is the new advantage in the game is winning in the margins. And that's what the humidors mm-hmm. are. And it's a copycat league, so you're, I'm, I'm sure there'll be some team that was like, "Man, we need we need our Farhan." So like, you know, let's go, you know, pay an AGM just to like, you know, he's in charge of the last three spots on our roster, and you know, mm-hmm. he's doing all the claims, and that's his only job, you know. Um, and then I think the it's a copycat league to the point where the this will filter down to the players, where I think eventually hitters will mostly be Ichiro's, where they will have bat humidors. And they will want their bats to have the exact same, you know, you know, capabilities, no matter where they are. And they don't want them to dry out as fast and this and that and the other. So, you know, Ichiro famously had a humidor for his bat. And I think, you know, from talking to people for that piece I did on on bats, like uh, that would be the best way to travel with a bat is in a humidor. Yeah. Consistency. Well, it's, it's what everyone's looking for, right? It's just the inefficiency. That's why I watch the game. <laughs> so exciting. I love watching great displays of efficiency. <laughs> Who won the dollars per war championship this year? It really, mm. really tugs at the heartstrings. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I, I feel I feel that, that cynicism in the air. I, I felt it throughout this episode. <laughs> it, it was It was not the the most cheery episode of a podcast that we've ever done together. But hopefully if you were listening to us for the first time, you still found it insightful and enjoyable in some way, even if the subject matter itself was not particularly enjoyable throughout (laughs) most of the episode. Stick with us. We're fun. I promise. (laughs) We usually have more fun when there's not a lockout from the owners. Like that's, kind of how things work around here so if you'd like to sign up for a subscription to the athletic you can get one at 33 percent off at theathletic.com slash baseball show that'll get you all the latest reporting from the owners meetings the ongoing negotiation toward a new cba all that stuff that we have you can read up about the mega draft dig into some of the the surprises the twists and turns that were there grade brits team compared to everyone else's uh you know and i both like that team a lot so if you have issues with it Take them up with us. You know, we'll we'll, we'll set you straight. Uh, on Twitter, you can find Britt at Britt underscore Giroli. Find Eno at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Ben Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Friday.